You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. John chapter 5. As we look at part 2 of a message that we began last week entitled, Who is the Man? Who is the Man? These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Who is this one in whose name we must believe? Well, John chapter 5, we looked at last week, tells us that after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus, we find Him in this chapter in Jerusalem, having left Galilee. And you'll remember that He's there because of a Jewish feast. At least that's what verse 1 tells us. And He goes to a pool, a pool by the name of Bethesda, just inside the Sheep Gate. It's near the Temple Mount. And here at this pool, there is a temple of healing uh, to a God named Asclepius. It is a Roman god of medicine. And what is believed that this god, Asclepius, actually stirs the pool every now and again. And the first person to get into the pool after it's been stirred is healed. And so there we find a multitude of of those who are would the, the Bible would call invalids, lame, paralyzed, unable to Walk blind, some of them, and among these, a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Maybe his condition was his fault, maybe it was a result of his own choices, or maybe it was just something that happened to him. But essentially, his condition, after 38 years, was permanent, and he was utterly helpless. His condition led him to the pool where he believed he would find healing if he could just simply be the first one into the water. And Jesus, after 38 years of the man coming to the same place, looks at him and asks him, do you want to be healed? And in a moment, after 38 years of misery and guilt and pain and even shame from the culture, all of that was gone because Jesus healed him. So the man goes running out of this pagan temple where he encounters religious leaders of the day. And they grow upset about his violation of the Sabbath. Instead of being overjoyed that he was healed, they ask him the question, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And in the in the midst of their objection, the man's own spiritual condition, along with theirs, becomes crystal clear. Because they are not concerned with what Jesus had done simply because they were curious. They were intending to object and the man had no clue who it was who just healed him. 
The irony of the man's empty pursuit of healing is that along with scores of people, he kept coming back to the same gods, gods of their own making, over and over again, that could never heal. That was the backdrop of this miracle. And it does drive us to ask the question, doesn't it? Who is the man? In other words, where does healing actually come from? And we're forced to ask this same question in our own lives because today our sickness is no doubt across the board. Certainly it is physical as we deal with things like COVID and other illnesses that are around us. But our sickness is emotional. It is relational. And most of all, we have a spiritual sickness that plagues our lives. Sadly, we, like this man, go back to the same pool over and over of human invention in order to solve our healing. Self-expression or self-realization, human medicine, political figures, social plans, psychological methods, all of these things, inventions of men trying to find healing in their lives, and yet... None of them can ultimately answer, finally, our ultimate need for spiritual healing. And so we must ask the question, who is the man and where does this healing come from? And we came to this reality last week that only Jesus can ultimately bring real healing in a person's life. Only Jesus. However, Jesus as the answer to spiritual healing will not be the popular one. It's not going to be the next best seller on the list. And it will not meet the next headline. In fact, Jesus, as the answer to spiritual healing, will ultimately invite criticism and even opposition from those who reject Him as a fairy tale or someone who cramps their style. But at the end of the day, it will only bring objections from an unbelieving world. I shared with you last week that there are two things that we're going to see again and again begin to rise over the next several chapters. One of those is a rising fascination with Jesus. But the more prominent one that we'll see is a rising opposition to Jesus. And so here is the question. Who is the man? It's not one of fascination by these religious leaders. It's one of objection. And it's not primarily about what Jesus did, namely to heal the man. Their primary objection that we'll come to see is primarily about who Jesus is. So it again leads us to ask the question, who is he? Because not only must we acknowledge the source of healing, but we must acknowledge the identity of the healer. So if you found your place, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word as we look to John chapter five, beginning in verse 16 together. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as, the, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Father, I tremble at the thought that You sent Your one and only Son into the world to take on human flesh and to be God with us. Holy God in human flesh among wicked sinners like me. And God, you have done so to reveal your eternal plan to save sinners from their sin by crushing your only son. God, this is an amazing gospel. And as we sang a few moments ago, you are so good. And so I pray now that you would help us to grasp the truth of it. And I pray that you would guard our hearts from falling into the trap of mere sentimental belief in Jesus. May we have a deep, objective, authoritative understanding of who Jesus is from your word. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So let's back up the story a little bit. We need to get some context to what's happening here. If you weren't with us, with us last week, hopefully this will bring you back up to speed. If you were, this is a matter of review. But either way, it's important that we back up to the middle of verse 9. And here we, found this, we find this invalid has now been healed. He did what Jesus said. He got up, he picked up his bed, and he went on carrying it. The bed he'd been, li- been living in for 38 years. This is an amazing picture. 38 years stuck in this bed that was carrying him. We now find the same man carrying the bed through town and probably across the Temple Mount, which is where he might have might have ended up encountering these religious 
leaders. So he's celebrating. He's overjoyed that Jesus has just healed him. And he almost seems to forget about Jesus because the rest of the story shows us that he kind of just Jesus just kind of slipped off, maybe even without the man's knowledge of it. So he encounters the Pharisees and they're not concerned about his healing at all or his joy or any of those things. They're concerned that he's violating the self-defined 39 categories of work on the Sabbath. That's what we read here in the middle of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. What's the, the, the significance of verse 9? They say, well, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. It's funny that he immediately turns to blame the problem on Jesus. How many times do we find in our life that we get into some kind of a predicament, some kind of a, a tight spot, and we immediately tend to blame God, right? And this is what he does. He blames Jesus. And yet he really doesn't even know who Jesus is. Now, it's really important to say here, as we mentioned last week, and let me mention it to you again, that honoring the Sabbath... And keeping it holy is the command of God. Amen, church? This is what God has commanded us to do. And it applies to us as much as it applies to them then. It is His will that we take a day of rest and of worship. But the first century oppression of 39 different categories of work Defined not by God's word, but by by rabbinic tradition was not the command of God. It was a legalistic prison designed to control and to condemn. And that is what's being used here to rebuke this man. Interestingly, again, the man blames Jesus. You see, the guilt and shame of the law could not be taken away Simply by the man's physical healing. Something more had to happen. The answer of who is Jesus had to be defined. He knew the place of healing, but he did not know the person of healing. That's made clear by verse 12. So notice it with me. They ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed? In verse 13, he says that he doesn't know who it was. Of course, Jesus had withdrawn. Clearly, he could not have told us who Jesus was. Maybe by face, but certainly not by name and definitely not by identity. But it was after Jesus came and found him that he ultimately went and told the religious leaders, it was Jesus who healed me. That's when he was able to tell them. Now, we're not told his motive for returning to these religious leaders and telling them, telling them that it was Jesus. I, I don't think that you could say definitively he was telling on Jesus. Because there is Jesus, there's the man, and he's just had the best thing ever happen to him. I don't think that would be the case. Plus, the man begins to kind of fade to the background, if you will. Jesus appears simply to him, and then the man is not in the rest of the story. He did not know who Jesus was, and yet it was important that he know who Jesus was. The first confrontation of the man was physical, but the second confrontation was spiritual. 
The man's sins were not forgiven just because his illness was healed. He needed a savior. And on the way, he gives testimony to these religious leaders. It was Jesus who brought me healing. So as the man fades into the background, what is it that becomes the focus of the conversation between the religious leaders and Jesus? What exactly is their objection? Why did they want to know who is the man? Well, on the surface, the answer to that question would seem that it's because Jesus was also breaking their Sabbath rules by healing the man. So notice verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. That in itself would not seem, at least on the surface, like a violation of the 39 categories that they had made up. Again, this is not God's law. This is merely human tradition. And it is a tradition that actually not that actually was never intended to supersede human life. In fact, there was an exception in the Sabbath law that allowed for all of those things to be temporarily put aside in order to save someone's life. So you would think that what Jesus just did was actually perfectly in line with the law that they were suggesting. But again, they didn't acknowledge who Jesus was. You see, there was in the law a prohibition from grinding herbs which ultimately would lead to healing. See, their assumption about who Jesus was was not the Son of God. Their assumption about who Jesus was was some rogue doctor violating the Sabbath. And yet, Jesus as healer is the Son of God. And when He proclaims to be, answering them in verse 17, My Father is working until now and I am Working, we're told the real heart of what their objection was in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Their problem was not primarily with what Jesus was doing. Their problem primarily was with who Jesus rightfully claimed to be. You see, the question, who is the man, is driving the whole text. John wants us to see who Jesus is here. And John helps us to see that he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. You see, this text not only drives us to ask the question, who is Jesus, so that we might come to Him as the right and only place for real healing. This text drives us to answer the question so that we might look to Him and worship. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about the danger of coming to Jesus for what He can give versus coming to Jesus to get Jesus. And here, John is warning us by recounting this story once again. Don't come to Jesus just for the healing. You've got to come to Jesus for who He is. And who is Jesus? Finally, John answers the question for us. Jesus is completely equal with God. 
He's completely equal with God. That's what he says. Making himself equal with God. And Jesus does not deny this. He only goes on for the next nine to eleven verses or so and actually affirms what was claimed about him. He's completely equal with God. He and the Father are one. If it's not explicit here enough, you can go on to John chapter 10 and you'll see the same thing. Jesus explicitly states, I and the Father are one. In John 17, I love this prayer, the high priestly prayer as it's been affectionately called. He prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. God the Father, God the Son, and ultimately, though we don't have time to unpack this this morning, God the Spirit are all one. The Bible teaches this. It's not the intent of this text to look at the Spirit, so we want to stick to the Father and the Son. We've already seen from John 1 that they are co-eternal and co-existent. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was at the beginning. He did not have a beginning. He will not have an end. Jesus always has been. Even though Jesus was born 2,000 years ago in a manger, He was not created there. He did not come into existence there. Jesus always has been from eternity. Along with that, He is co uh he, he is co-existent, rather, with the Father. Co-existent. Meaning, the Father didn't become the Son and come to earth. They exist as three persons in eternity. But when you come to this text, we see maybe for the first time that they are co-equal. That Jesus is, in fact, God in human flesh. The Son is not part of God. He's not an expression or a mode of God. God did not leave heaven and become a man and lose a part of Himself. Jesus did not shed His divinity even in coming to earth. He is equal with God. And we must believe this. We must believe this. Why? Because the nature of genuine faith is that it believes this truth about Jesus. It's why in John 14, do you remember that famous passage where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Do you remember the passage? Well, after this happens, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. In other words, just like all the rest of the book of John, give us a sign. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And listen to what he says in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? See, we have to be convinced of the divinity of Jesus. This is an entry point to salvation. John 20, verse 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God said that every single week, but we must believe that Jesus is the Son of God in order that by believing we might have life in His name. And this is so incredibly important. Here in our text, 
And it is something that needs to be said amidst contemporary, culturally defined Christianity. I want you to hear this statement. As we think about what Jesus is saying here, what he's claiming and what is required for belief. Belief in Jesus is more than mere sentimental. It must be doctrinal. Belief in Jesus is more than merely sentimental. It must be doctrinal. In other words, it matters infinitely, not just who we believe in, but who we believe Him to be. I I hear so much sentimentalism in the church today. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. God takes care of me. I pray often. He provides. I trust Him. My question is, who is this Him that you're trusting in? Who do you believe Him to be? Simply put, doctrine is a definite set of beliefs. Things that are true. Here, namely, they are a set of beliefs, things that are true about God based on not a subjective standard the way I feel, but based on the objective standard of His Word. God has spoken, therefore I believe. You see, trusting in Christ is more than your personal opinion, experience, or your feelings. It must be based on the objective truth of God's Word. And belief in Jesus, listen to me carefully, that is not rooted and grounded in the Bible as its authoritative source is not faith at all, no matter how it feels. The man walked away healed. By cultural Christianity standards, we would have said this man had a radical change in his life. And yet, he did not know the Savior. The objection over the healing was not how the man felt. It was on who Jesus was. The matter of greatest concern was not their feelings about Jesus, but who Jesus authoritatively proclaimed Himself to be. And I want you to hear this morning that this is so vital. Because your feelings will not carry you through the Christian life. Your feelings will not keep you secure in your faith. Feelings will not get you by when you face major illnesses or crises in your life. They won't get you there. Feelings will not get you by when you face the potential loss of comfort And religious freedom for being a Christian, even in America. Feelings will not get you by when you get threatening letters from a terrorist organization that say, I know where you are and what you're doing and how to find you. Feelings won't get you by when your 14-year-old little girl is ripped out of your arms and forced into sexual slavery because you're a Christian. Feelings won't get you by whenever you wake up on a Sunday morning ready to worship the Lord. 
And your phone streams in the headlines like this. More kids are being hospitalized with COVID. Doctors fear it will get worse. Feelings don't get you by whenever your day that should be filled with faith is filled with more doubt and fear and anxiety and worry and for some of us anger and frustration. You see, feelings are subjective. Faith is objective and authoritative and God-breathed and it must be rooted in God's all-sufficient, breathed out by His own breath, Word. This is what we must decide whether we believe. Will we believe the objective truth of Jesus or will we believe in our feelings? Jesus claims to be equal with God. Verse 11, uh, rather verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God, his own father, making himself equal with God. So that's the claim. And then he spends the next part of the the next part of the text unpacking what he means by that. So verses 19 and 24 and 25, what we see is the first of five claims, the first of five claims of equality with God in different ways. I want you to see these. Number one, the first claim that Jesus makes is to be equal with God in authority. Jesus is equal with God in authority. So verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, we see that two other times. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 25, the same things. Three different times he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. Who it is that is saying and what he has to say is vitally important here. When you place that, truly, truly, I say to you, when you place that in the greater context of what is being said, he is making a claim to be speaking the very words of God. There is a distinct difference between man's words and God's words. Amen? There's a distinct difference between a headline that comes across your phone, the, the orders of a government or a doctor, the, the prognosis of a doctor of your health, and what God says in His Word. There is a distinct difference between what culture defines as right or wrong, what God defines as right or wrong. And when man speaks... I have absolutely no obligation to listen unless God speaks. And when God speaks, I have absolutely every obligation to listen. Because God's word has ultimate authority. Jesus is claiming that authority here. Second Timothy chapter three and verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands. The word of our God stands forever. Psalm 119, verse 9. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's speaking with the authority of 
God. And he goes on to say in verse 24, notice it with me. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death and to life. This is where there is such a heavy application. You see, truth does not exist in a vacuum. Truth, as spoken by God, bears authority. And in other words, it must then bear authority over somebody. Namely us. Which means that the expectation is because it's authoritative, we must obey Him. To reject the authority of Jesus is to reject the authority of God. You cannot simply water His words down to lesser important or lesser value, nor can you really elevate them to greater importance than the Father. The words of Jesus are the words of the, of the Father. They bear absolute authority on our lives because He's equal with God and therefore we must obey Him. To reject Jesus' words or His authority is to forfeit eternal life, to come into eternal judgment, and to remain spiritually dead under the law. Because that's the opposite of what happens when those believe. Those who believe the content and authority of God's Word receive eternal life. They don't come into judgment, and they have passed from death into life. So in these first few words, we hear... The authority of Christ. Secondly, Jesus is not only equal in authority with the Father, He is equal with God in will. Jesus is equal with God in will. So after truly, truly, I say to you, He says, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is Doing greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. It's an action-oriented verse. Jesus says, I'm not going to do anything unless God has said for me to do this or unless God wants me to do this. The Father, namely. What's behind the working of the Father and the working of the Son is that they share the same intent. The same will. They both want the same things. There's never any point. How many of you have ever had a marital disagreement or a relational disagreement anyway? Right? Yeah, they say we're one flesh. (laughs) Not all the time, right? Never at any point does the will of the Father and the will of the Son disagree. Never at any point, children, will God the Father and God the Son tell you to do something different like sometimes mom might tell you to do something different than what dad said or vice versa. Never will that ever happen. Because what God has spoken is God's will. What the Son speaks is God's will because Jesus is God. That's why the Son can do nothing of His own accord. The concept of God's will has been made so subjective, hasn't it? Just looking for God's will for my life. To the point that I assign authority on what God subjectively speaks to me and call it God's will when it conflicts with what God has actually spoken in His Word and Jesus is doing by God's will, then what we think is God's will is not God's will. And that is what Jesus goes on to say. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. God is revealing His will, not subjectively, but objectively through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And don't miss it. 
there's a relational component there. For the Father loves the Son. It's tied to the Gospel. It's tied to God's perfect love for His one and only Son extended to us through His love for us on the cross. This leads to the third way that He's equal with God and that is in salvation. In salvation. Second half of verse 20 it says, And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to all whom He will. Greater works than what? That's the question. Than the healing that goes before them in the text. They've just seen and witnessed the works of the man who is, or the works of Jesus for the man who is healed, right? What Jesus is saying is no greater things are coming than even this and play it out. He begins to describe the raising of the dead and the Father raising the dead to life, the Son giving life to all, all whom He will. Certainly it's a picture of the resurrection from the dead. If you're a first century Jew, you would have certainly heard this. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. They know that God is going to do this one day. And Jesus references it. In doing this, he calls to the physical resurrection which they're believing in, but certainly he points to his own resurrection. When God will raise Jesus from the dead, which he has done. Amen, church? Jesus is alive. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, then we know that God is working a work of salvation in the world. He extends that to the work of Jesus in the world when he says that Jesus is raising people from the dead. Jesus has life in himself and he gives it to whom he will. See, this is a picture when you wrap it all together, not just of one man's salvation, but the entire work of salvation through the gospel. It's a picture of what Paul said in Ephesians 2, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, that we once followed all of those things, but, but God in His mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has made us alive together in Christ. God is doing a mighty resurrection work among sinners, whereby... People are being raised to life with no ability, just like this leper or just like this, this invalid, no ability for us to do anything about the condition that we have, no ability to save ourselves, no ability to invent healing. But Jesus does it through his cross. This is what he means by greater works. You just wait and see what God has planned for you. And then finally, there are two more that are intertwined together. Number four, Jesus is equal with God in judgment. And number five, Jesus is equal with God in reward. Together, the same text, same part of the text. Notice the contrast. The contrast is made in order to create a tension between the two. Because there cannot be reward and judgment. You cannot experience both. You either experience judgment or you experience reward. So notice verse 22. For the Father judges no one. Not that He's not able. But He's given it to the Son. He's given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son. The whole point is that they'll honor Jesus. Just as they honor God the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son. Here's the judgment part. Does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear, they'll live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And one of two things will happen, verse 29. And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And he says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So judgment and reward. The father judges no one, but he's given authority to the son to judge. That is to say that the father appointed the son to execute the father's judgment. The judgment's the same. What is the point of this judgment and what is the measure of this judgment? The measure is, did you honor the son? The point of the judgment is in order that all people might honor the son, whether in life or in death. That every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Furthermore, that is a just judgment. Listen to me carefully, church. When God sends people to hell because of their lack of belief in Jesus, it is not at all unjust. It is right. The other side of this is reward. He said an hour is coming and is now here. The dead will hear the voice of the Son and they will live. Father has life in himself. The Son gives life. When the Son rewards, the Father rewards. The Son promises life. The Father gives life to all who honor the Son through faith. The contrast is intended to point us to two realities. The first reality is to future events. Understand this. No matter what you thought coming in today about heaven and hell, listen to me. No matter what you thought, heaven and hell are real places. And those who reject Christ will spend eternity separated from Him. And those who receive Christ will spend eternity with Him. This is reality. And this is why the tension is here. But it leads to the second reality, and that is the reality of a choice. Because I don't know what your background is or what choices you've made in life or what you've believed about Jesus thus far, but the opportunity is before you right now today to make a choice to follow Jesus. And everyone in this room will make a choice. You'll make a choice today. You will either choose not to follow Jesus, which means you will go out back into the condition that you came in. And that's a sinner destined toward an eternal hell. I don't want you to do that. Jesus is calling you this morning. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. The question of choice is, will you believe the gospel? And by belief, we mean, will you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that salvation and reward comes only from Him, that He's sovereign King and Lord over all things, and today will you give Him your life? 
with every head bowed and every eye closed, we ask you this morning. As you're considering what God is speaking to your heart right now. What it means to obey him. In just a few moments, we're going to stand in this place and this altar will be open for a time of response to God and what he's calling you to. In just a few moments when we stand, I want to encourage you. You're here this morning. You don't know Jesus. Today, Jesus has given you a choice to come and follow him and be saved. We want to invite you to do that. Plead with you. Would you do that? Would you give your life to Jesus today? In just a few moments when we stand, I want to ask you right where you're standing, if you'll step out of your place, come down this aisle, say to me today, Pastor, I I want to be saved. I want to follow Jesus. I believe that Jesus is God, that he's equal with God. And today he he gave his life for my sins. Today I want to follow him. Would you come in just a few, few moments when we stand? Others of you in this room, there's other decisions that need to be made. Maybe you need to pray for someone who's never trusted in Jesus. You come and pray today. Pray for them. Ask God to do a work in their heart and their life. And then this week, you minister to them. You speak the gospel. Remind them. Tell them, maybe for the first time, what Jesus did for them. It's all across the room. Let me ask you to stand. This altar is open. I'm going to pray. You come this morning. Lord Jesus, have your way in our hearts and in this place. And we ask God, that people would be saved, that hearts and lives would submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Today, that He would be made known as God in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You come. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.